0: This Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use offer code SPOILER4.
1: This is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Michael Bay's Pain and Gain. And joining me in the Slate studio is Katie Rich. Hi, Katie. Hi. You are the editor in chief of cinemablend.com mm-hmm. and you also host co-host a podcast? Yeah, uh,
0: the Operation Kino podcast which is on iTunes like this one.
1: And you do a weekly
0: movie discussion? Yeah, basically. we do two episodes. There's one that's about kind of broader topics and then one that's a review and we also reviewed Pain and Gain. You talked about Pain and Gain yeah. already and you had a consensus that everybody liked it, right? Yeah, we I mean not everyone is 100% on board with everything, but we were all pretty into it and we you know we reviewed Transformers 3 a year two years ago and all hated it. So it's a that was a fun turnaround. You were surprised by your your affection for this movie. Yeah. Definitely definitely. definitely. I think like a lot of people, Michael Bay has worn me out, especially with the Transformers movies and I think I went into this wanting it to be a redemption for him and then when that happened to some degree, I was really happy about that. Yeah,
1: I feel like a lot of critics are talking about this as this big Michael Bay redemption, which (laughs) to me makes me feel like he earned it by going so far down the road of making just unbearable movies that now that he's made something that has a little bit of life to it people are just patting him on the head a little bit bit too hard for my taste. So you will get some pushback (laughs) although I did
0: like Pain and Gain more than I thought. Okay, so let's get into um, what the movie is. Do you want to do a quick Thank you. the cat thumbnail plot sketch. Sure. I mean, it's based on a true story, as we're told several times through it. It's about these three kind of lunkheads who work out at this gym in Miami who decide to kidnap and rob this Miami businessman. He's played by Tony Shaloub. He's kind of depicted as a bad guy, but not. He's not a total slimeball. We're not sure if he's in, involved in drugs or in anything illegal. He's just kind of a jerk. But then again, the guys are jerks too. Uh, Mark Wahlberg, The Rock, and Anthony Mackie play these three guys who kidnap him. It's the Mark Wahlberg's kind of the mastermind, and he's convincing all these guys to to do it for their own various reasons. It's kind of... There's a very strong theme of the American dream running through it, where there's American flags in the background, and Ken Jeong plays this self-help guru who's telling them what they can achieve, and they think that the only way that they can get money or anything they want is to kidnap and torture this guy, which is not what any normal person would do. And because they're idiots, this scheme that they think is going to be easy goes off the rails, and then it succeeds, and then it goes off the rails even more. And this is a two-hour-plus movie, so there's a lot of room for a lot of different things. Yeah, I mean, to
1: me, it's at least a half an hour too long. Yeah. But as is pretty obvious from your description, this is a comedy or Mm -hmm. a would-be comedy. It's a a very, very dark comedy. I guess you'd call it a black comedy, right? I mean, it's a comedy wherein uh, you don't like anyone. You can't Identify with anyone you don't know where to place yourself morally. In that sense, it reminded me of Spring Breakers, which I think Mm. a lot of people are comparing it to. It has a less, you know, avant-garde intention than Spring Breakers, but in a way, it has a kind of equally avant-garde effect because it sets the viewer afloat in this amoral
0: universe that's kind of funny but increasingly disturbing as the movie goes on. Well, the only difference between this and Spring Breakers, I think, is that you get Ed Harris eventually, and he shows up as this kind of Ramrod straight detective who is outside the story. He's, I mean, several people have said it's like he floated in from another movie. And he's just Ed Harris. He's there, and the minute he comes on screen, you're like, nope, these guys are done. Like you know that they're not going to succeed, and he becomes kind of the one person you can root for. And I was actually really in fear that they were somehow going to try and kill Ed Harris, and I found myself surprisingly invested in this character. Who I mean, none of the characters are especially well drawn, but because Ed Harris actually felt like a real human, I felt like I had found a moral center right around the point, like an hour end where the movie really could have spun out, like spun out of control. I guess to that extent,
1: if there's a moral center, it is Ed Harris. But his character is barely developed. He's really yeah. functional. He's there. To- to be a detective who's working for Tony Shaloub and sort of rounding up the guys, but you don't really learn much about his motivation or, or see much of his. You know, it's not like we see his repulsed reaction to these three jokers that he's yeah. trying to track down. Well,
0: you kind of get it in very vague sketches. He lives in this nice house. He has a wife who looks like a human as opposed to kind of the random supermodels who always dot right back and, and of every pneumatic starlets, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, he's got you give it to you in very brief sketches that this is Ed Harris, and he's basically is just playing Ed Harris. He's the guy who has everything under control, and I like that Michael Bay brings you know, Ed Harris was in the rock for him and I like that Michael Bay knew he could just bring him in and immediately set him up as the good guy who was going to catch these idiots and he didn't really need to develop it further because everyone in this movie is kind of an archetype.
1: But isn't that sort of lazy? I mean, I, I, I can't, I'm still putting my thoughts together about this movie. I'm not quite done with my review. I ultimately don't know whether I would recommend it or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess if you're a person who is drawn to this kind of thing, if you like black comedy, if you like kind of extreme sensation in a movie theater, it provides a lot of extreme sensation. To me, especially toward the end, it just started to be sensation for the sake of sensation. I also, I think that black comedy is a really, really hard genre to do. You know, I mean, Fargo is a great black comedy, mm-hmm. right? Um, Danny Boyle made a really great black comedy that I can't remember the name of right now. Shallow Grave. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can, you, If you set up your characters right and you set up your situation right, you can take that kind of really dark, sick, perverse humor a long way but if you just kind of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks which is pretty much the bay you know modus operandi in every movie then i just feel like the tone starts to
0: disintegrate really fast.
1: Well, the first, exhausts- half, the first half hour of this movie, it, it works. Mm-hmm. But then it, to me, just starts to feel long, long, long. It does
0: exhaust you. But I do think that he nails the tone for a surprisingly long period of time. And he uses the violence really well so that he's not implicating the audience in participating in what's going on. You know, when there's a... I mean, I guess we're spoiling. There's a part where they try to kill Tony Shalhoub. And they run him over with the car and they try to set the car on fire. And they, they set up all these various things to kill him and it doesn't work. And you s- experience that violence really deeply. And you're not you know, you're not going to see your heroes get away with it. You have to really feel, I mean, I had to cover my eyes a couple of times, and I, and Michael Bay has blown up entire cities with no impact at all, and I like that when he's making the smaller movie, he's making you feel the impact of the violence so that it stays a black comedy, and you are always aware of the impact of what these guys are doing, even if, you know, because they're Mark Wahlberg and The Rock, you're going to root for them a little bit anyway.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I'm not totally sure. <laughs> I mean, toward the end, okay, there's that horrible, horrible scene where they basically run over Tony Shalhoub's head, right? Yeah. But because his head happens to be way Sort of between two pieces of rubble, it's somehow kind of below the tire, so it doesn't actually kill him. <laughs> I, I watched so little
0: of it; I had my hands in front of my face. so I don't really know how it works.
1: That's really horrible. And then there's another kind of horrible head moment, which mm-hmm. yeah, we're spoiling away. So I just I thought that that scene toward the end, where there's you know the second guy that they're trying mm-hmm. to rip off with his kind of you know big voluptuous wife who's dancing with Anthony Mackie. Yeah, you know yeah. that scene, yeah. And Dwayne Johnson's high on coke, and it's all just like just complete um uh, decadence, right yeah, yeah. out of control. And then it ends in that guy dying by a weight falling on his Mm -hmm. head. Okay, it's not graphically shown. You just sort of see the blood leaking out afterwards. But that was the moment that the movie started to lose me because I just felt like I'm really not sure whether Michael Bay is critiquing violence Mm -hmm. here or
0: just reveling in it. I can see that blurry line, too. I think I feel a little bit of that. But I think there's something poetic about the way that it's the weight that kills the guy. You know, Mark Wahlberg's obsessed with lifting weights. And even when they're in the middle of the chaos, he has to, what does he say, do a pump, like where he just starts lifting weights just to get his head clear. There's something great about the way that the thing, the only thing that Mark Wahlberg is in control of is his weightlifting. And that's what winds up making everything spiral out of control. And he's, I mean, Michael Bay doesn't have... I don't think he's ever going to fully critique violence. I think he's made too much money off of it, and you wouldn't really believe it if he did it. But again, I do think he makes you feel that. It really is, makes you squirm, and you really care about You don't care about the guy who's killed. He's, you know, whatever disposable victim. But you do care about these guys, and you care about their panic. I mean, Anthony Mackey, it's in his house. Like, he's had the most normal life of any of them. He's married to Rebel Wilson, who we can talk about this. I think she's treated better than any woman over 90 pounds has ever been treated in a Michael Bay movie, even though it's not perfect. Um, but you, you know, when Anthony Mackey is trying to clean everything up, you feel bad for him. So, it the, again, the violence has weight, even if it's a little bloodier. Right. The maybe... cleanup
1: scene, of course, couldn't help but invoke Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And the Bonnie cleanup scene, yeah. right, where they call in Harvey Keitel to clean up the gore of a murder. It's the same sort of thing, mm-hmm. but just so incompetently done. They need the wolf. They need Harvey Keitel <laughs> oh, so badly. And the incompetence of these, the, these guys does make for some good laughs even far along the way. Yeah. But I guess because Michael Bay can never slow down, I mean I'm not asking him to make a contemplative pastoral shepherding <laughs> movie, but because he can never slow down enough for the com- the the conversation to be about anything except, you know, the next frenetic mm-hmm. problem in the in the crime to be solved. We don't see the moment that these guys turn, you know? Like that seems like a really important thing in a black comedy where they go from sort of like um, you know, just just boobs to actual killers and people that are covering up a murder and you know people that will grill somebody's hands and feet on a on a barbecue to get rid of the prints you know like they start doing these really barbaric things toward the end and it's all that same sort of light tone there's just i mean i'm not saying that they shouldn't do those things. I think most of these things actually happened
0: in real life, right? I, I mean, there's a, a, a line, I mean, there's occasional text on screen and there's one very late in the movie that just says, this is still a true story just right. to remind you that all right. of these things really did happen.
1: Yeah, no, so accepting that, like, this is going to be an incredibly grotesque dark comedy about real facts, I just, I think there needs to be a little bit more of a place where the viewers are given some kind of foothold, some place to understand, you know, how to if not sympathize with these guys, at least just just know what's happening in their heads. And a, an example of that, I think, is that when The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, when his character, who's this Jesus freak and this sober guy who's who found found God in prison, right. When he goes back on coke, we never see that moment. Mm. It's, it's not. It's not shown to us. You know, we, we see him. It's, we sort of cut ahead in time. You know, their first uh, Tony Shalhoub rip-off scam has yeah. more or less worked, and they're all filthy rich. and And then Dwayne Johnson is suddenly back on coke and snorting it off of hookers. And to me, it sort of seemed like you know, if there's a moral center among the three jokers, it's him. It's mm-hmm. The Rock, right? He feels guilty about what they're doing. He tries to befriend their victim, Tony Shalhoub. He's he's not deep down a bad guy. He's just sort of going along to get along, and. I wanted to see the moment when, you know, he gets unsober and and decides to to go down that road.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces in the story that I think the script can't quite handle. There's a lot. And and I remember in that middle section of the movie where they're all rich and there's, you know, Mark Wahlberg has just moved into Tony Shalhoub's house and he just assumes that that's going to work. And obviously he's an idiot, but that seemed so outrageous of a thing for a person to do that I also didn't understand how that worked. Are you as impressed by The Rock as a lot of us are by his performance in this movie? I mean, I, th- I think he's
1: really good. I think he's surprisingly good. Although, you know, he's always been sort of—he has an endearing quality that comes mm-hmm. across as Mark Wahlberg does. You know, there's something that you always sort of like and root for about him. I don't quite know that I get the swooning that I saw on Twitter about The Rock. I mean, I don't think this is sort of like the Matthew McConaughey in Ma- in Magic Mike performance of this year or something. You know, something that's just completely out of left field
0: and kind of perfect. But uh, he's very at ease. He's very comfortable in front of the camera. It's nice just to see him. Get of something that's a challenge. Like he's always been, like you said, at ease, he's always been really charismatic. And it's good to see him just playing a character. I think that's what a lot of people are swooning over, just allowing this huge guy who's a wrestler, he doesn't look like any normal human being, but letting him play a pretty well-rounded character and a really interesting character is fascinating. And just to see that he can really pull it off. There's some funny stuff between him and Tony Shalhoub in
1: that long, way too long section where they're keeping Tony Shalhoub prisoner and trying to break him, basically get him to sign over all of his property to them. There's some funny kind of reverse of expectations moments where the victim is a complete asshole, and the captor is this kind of gentle giant, yeah. you know? And I actually, I do like the idea of making the victim hard to like, which is something Ed Harris keeps saying after he gets hired to help Tony Shalhoub find the guys, right? He's You're a very hard victim to like.
0: Well, even the cops who go and investigate it, and, th- and this is, I think, one of the problems is that we've got these three essential idiots, we've got Tony Shalhoub, and then a couple of side characters also wind up being giant idiots. Like, when they go and talk to Tony, Sh- Tony Shalhoub in the hospital, and they assume he got wrapped up in some, like, gay sex crime because they were in a warehouse full of sex toys, it just... That doesn't quite make sense, but it is part of, I think, Michael Bay establishing this entire world. Like, Miami is a whole planet where everyone except Ed Harris is a complete idiot. And homophobic and, you know, racist and, you know, traits that we see in other Michael Bay movies. In this one, he's kind of assigning it to these characters who exist in this alternate universe, kind of like the way that uh, Spring Breakers sets up Florida as an alternate universe as well. Yeah,
1: it's weird how this movie echoes Spring Breakers in so many ways. Okay, well, I want to get into whether all of these gestures towards homophobia, racism, sexism actually are homophobic, racist and sexist. But first, let's take a moment for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER4. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's a website, an advertisement, multimedia presentation, or any type of film project. They have clips in a variety of digital formats, and most come in HD. Shutterstock sources video clips from around the world and puts them at your fingertips. They add 10,000 new video clips every week, so every time you visit, you'll find something new. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. No credit card needed. Just start an account, begin using Shutterstock to help imagine what your next project could be like, and once you decide to purchase, use the offer code SPOILER4 so new accounts can receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code SPOILER4. The Spoiler Special thanks Shutterstock for their support. All right. So back to pain and gain. So let's do an overview of some of the problems in this movie. I mean, I don't necessarily just mean problems with the movie, but problems in America that the movie addresses. I would say, sort of uh, in a hammering one on the head sort of way. I mean, the, the message comes across in the very, very first voiceover from Mark Wahlberg. Right. The first thing we see is him doing this kind of crazy sit up where he's hanging
0: upside down from a wall of the gym. And it, when, but when he has a camera mounted to his chest, so you're following him as he does these right, sit up, Cam, down, which right. is wild. And and then you hear him narrating this
1: voiceover that it's it's really obvious that he's that Bay is making this analogy between Mark Wahlberg's kind of crazy delusional American dream and the American dream, mm-hmm. and he's sort of saying to himself, "I'm buff, I'm hot, I'm a winner," right? And repeating these uh, these self affirmations, and then he himself goes, Mark Wahlberg goes on this theoretical kind of discourse about, you know, America is the most buff country in the world, and we're going to beat those scrawny, what is it, something about like the scrawny third world countries something or something? Like it's kind of this weird mixture of just jingoism and narcissism, and it all comes out in his opening monologue, which I thought was kind of kinetic and great, right? And then seconds later, you see the cops pull up, he's running from the cops, there's a very, very slow motion shot of him running, and then we get into the rest of the story, which will eventually wrap back to this moment and show how he started to be pursued by the cops. Now, to me, like I say, that message was sort of all Michael Bay had to say. It wasn't the deepest thing in the world, and it kept being repeated in different point-of-view voiceovers by different characters, you know, throughout the whole movie. Um, do, but do you think that he, this movie, has anything to say? Are you are you satisfied by its the message that it carries?
0: I don't know that it has a ton to say. I think you're right that that kind of the idea that you're pursuing something and all these people are trying to pursue whatever their version of the American dream is through ridiculous ways is pretty much the meat of the entire story. But it is, I like seeing it all put on the surface. I feel like this has been the subtext of every Michael Bay movie where he's you know he gives us Transformers and you're like everybody wants a cool car and a babe on a motorcycle and kind of makes us assu- like, assumes that the audience wants that too and in this it's actually taking that apart and saying this is what some people want and this is how ridiculous it can be and there's something about just parodying that urge which is, exists everywhere it's subliminal in almost everything not just what Michael Bay makes but most things that come out of advertising or Hollywood and putting it on the surface makes it more interesting even if it's not digging particularly deep into that right
1: well I mean I, I see a lot of people saying that they're really bothered by the homophobia and sexism and even to some extent racism in this movie the racism usually being located in the Ken Jeong character yeah. who's this kind of um, you know guru self-help guru who never meets up with the guys interestingly you only see him in sort of cutaways to like infomercial type Well, he speeches. does. Mark
0: Wahlberg does go to one of his seminars and they kind of have a brief That's conversation right. we don't see much of it though it's not really that impactful yeah he, but
1: he doesn't know about the, the, the plot he no. doesn't directly interact with any of them
0: but thank God I mean he, I remember how much he was in Transformers 3 and a little Ken Jeong goes a long way it has often and having him in less of this movie I think is more is a better way to use his talents yeah I don't think I mean to say pain and gain is less racist and homophobic and sexist than most Michael Bay movies is not a compliment because ideally it would not be that at all but I'm, I'm comparing it to the actual you know rest, of humanity. Oh, to the rest <laughs> of humanity I mean I think it does reflect the way that a lot of people feel and you get Mark Wahlberg walking the gym and looking at with disgust at this overweight woman on the treadmill and that's unforgivable there's no reason to have that attitude and you do think that Michael Bay shares in that like Michael Bay clearly uses overweight women as a joke he always has and Rebel Wilson even though she is playing an actual character she's her weight is also used as a joke but I, there's I mean I don't want to write it off because I do think it's a problem and I think that those moments make Pain and Gain a weaker movie but in a way you can't get the good Michael Bay without the bad Michael Bay so it's it's all part and parcel and in this he's actually got characters who reflect that so there's slightly more of a reason for it to exist even if it would be a much better movie and he would be a much better director without it.
1: I think the way that that woman is treated again—I um, don't know how to identify her character. Like the big buxom lady who's with the guy that a weight falls on his head. Like, oh, She's supposed that to be woman, married yeah. to him, right? She's never given a name mm-hmm. or like any background, so I don't know how else to identify the her woman than with that. the breast implants. And I think that that character is treated really horribly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, first of all, of course, she's like shot up with horse tranquilizer and eventually killed by by mistake by Anthony Mackie. But even before that, when she's like dancing on the table and he's slapping her ass—I mean, there's something about
0: that kind of image of like, oh yeah, the big sexy. Fat party lady that just just really turned me off. Yeah, there's that, and then there's the guy at the gun store, the slightly effeminate guy who sells him the weapons, and he he's trying to sell them a taser, and for no reason he's like tase me. I've done it before, you know, shoot this taser on me, and then you just have this lingering shot of this slightly lisping guy being tased and it's, it's it's so it's hard to call that homophobia because it's so nonspecific and bizarre No, you're
1: but, right you're right it's more juvenile actually yeah, it's, it's really
0: it's just more like junior high bullying yeah and there's like dwarf jokes in there and there's a big long poop joke in the hospital and there's just stuff that that's Michael Bay's sense of humor and it's been awful in every movie he's made and even though this movie is a lot more accomplished than the Transformers films it, that's still in there and you just You can't get it out of him for some reason. He is a seventh grader. Well, you know, Keith Ulick for
1: Time Out wrote this really, really
0: hilarious pan of the movie, in which he compared
1: Michael Bay's artistic style to a toddler painting with his own feces. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I think, but I think in some crazy way, that kind of vitality and primitiveness is almost what you and people who really like the movie are responding to in it.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, Michael Bay is an auteur, I and mean, I think he all acknowledged that in his review too. He's got this style that is completely his own. He has made his stamp on this kind of filmmaking, and the fact that it comes with awful stuff in addition to kind of breathtaking action style, and you know the way that this entire world feels unified. It comes with that awfulness and you can either kind of be horrified by it, which is, you know, totally you should be horrified by it. But I think you can still take the film for what it does well while also saying, you know, give it a break, like, you know, grow up a little bit
1: you know, before we wrap, we haven't talked at all about the visual style of the movie and just, you know, sort of what it feels like as it unfolds. And as you say, Bay is an auteur of sorts and he definitely has his
0: own mark. Can you describe like what what this movie looks and sounds like? I mean, it looks in a way like the Transformers movies. It's very saturated colors. There's a lot of shots of beautiful women in bikinis. The, the pacing moves really fast. I think it does move slower than the Transformers movies. It's got, uh, we were talking before about how it, there's almost like an art film where he just throws in shots and you don't know what they mean and they last for half a second. And it's almost like subliminal messages. And it, 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 there's... A bit more coherence, just because he's making a movie about people. But I think that the speed and the saturated colors makes it. Feel like a world unto its own, and it does benefit the story more than it would if he was, you know, when he's trying to make a straightforward action film like he has before. He also has these self conscious moments, like you say, where legends pop up at the bottom of the
1: screen. That that moment that you see, this is sadly still a true story. <laughs> I think that's the moment that the Rock is grilling the hands, yeah. <laughs> which is sort of the high point of grotesque absurdity near the end. And uh, and that's very late for that to appear. You know, it's this it's this kind of jarring thing, and I I liked that. I also liked the the switching voiceovers from from different points of view.
0: I really liked the voiceovers, and I. I a lot of people I know were kind of exhausted by it, but I like that everyone has their little chance to speak up. And I think it fits with what we were talking about, the theme of everyone chasing their own American dream. You know, even the... uh the bosnian or a russian supermodel or whoever the woman who teams up with the rock she gets her voiceover for a brief second and you see kind of the surreal experience she had coming to america it switches perspectives in this really fluid way that i think that michael bay's crazy style allows that to happen you couldn't quite do it if he wasn't cutting around so fast. well because i don't feel, feel like
1: he's filmmaker enough to tell the story without the, the, the voiceover it's so frenetic everything <laughs> that you're true. seeing that that's sort of the the only exposition we get but it's not boring exposition that's, that's, that's very sure. true you know the very end where we see mugshots of the actual guys. You know next to it's a very very common right in movies based on a true story that at the end you'll get to see the actual person and uh, and the Mark Wahlberg character and also the Anthony Mackey character end up on death row right mm-hmm. and uh, and then the other guy the Dwayne Johnson character gets I think 15 years yeah, because because he helped he helped finger his I his think he's now free actually. To me, there was a disappointment in the hastiness with which we saw the real guys, you know, had their stories wrapped up, and, and the movie ended. I mean, we've spent a lot of time in the company of these guys, and we never, again, just as I was saying, you don't see when The Rock goes back on coke, you don't see the moment that they realize that they're going to die, that they're getting sentenced to death row. You know, I feel like, again, it's this is the sort of a lack of any moral grounding. You know, we're supposed to, I guess, sort of cheer that they got caught and that they're going to be killed, but I, I just feel like that places us in some sort of relationship with them that the movie feels unresolved
0: yeah i kind of wish that hadn't happened and the ending i think feels dragged out and there's a moment when uh, mark wahlberg has been apprehended in the bahamas when he's trying to empty tony Shaloub's offshore bank account and he comes back to miami and there's this press everywhere and there's this huge police presence and he turns to ed harris and goes is this all for me and you can tell that he's still kind of dazzled by what he's accomplished and he, he the weight of it has not quite hit him and it reminded me of the informant in that way where that the steven soderbergh movie with matt damon where he's kind of this moron who's trapped up in this case, and he never quite realizes exactly what's happened and what he's caused, and I felt like that was a really good note to end on, to keep it upbeat without, I mean, just acknowledging that they go to death row is a really dark way, and then it just sends you out, like, it didn't mean anything, and that kind of almost brings you back to the Michael Bay we expect, where death is nothing, and he just moves on, so I I do think, I agree with you that that ending with the real mugshots was a little off-key for what everything else that happened. Yeah,
1: it's it's such a dark, dark, cynical, moral universe we've been inhabiting the whole time, and yet there's kind of no gravity to it, you know? So so you end a sort of you know not just not any sense of of even comeuppance or satisfaction or like yeah the hell with those guys I I was just sort of like all right so life's a bitch and then you die all right (laughs) I mean and it's so frenetically paced and yet it feels slow because there's not any variation in in that
0: pace or in that Mm -hmm. that
1: cynical tone
0: maybe they should have ended with the rock singing with the choir in uh, prison because he looked so happy that would have been a nicer note to go on. (laughs) yeah
1: a little uplift please next time Michael Bay all right, well, Katie, this was so much fun. It was excellent. I can't believe you haven't come in to spoil a movie before. I am so
0: excited to be here. This is uh, the Slate recording room. I've uh,
1: <laughs> listened leg- to it so many times. A legendary white box. <laughs> well, please come back soon and, and do another spoiler with mm-hmm. me. Thanks. I'd love to. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.